Welcome to my second briefing. The topic of this briefing today is going to be Taiwan primarily, but I also want to bring an update in about what's going on in Iran. So as I've mentioned before, the center point, the centerpiece of the Iranian regime's last line of defense against regime change is the besieged militia. The besieged militia are a religious paramilitary group primarily made up of lower class people whose job it is to uh, enforce things on the street if they get out of control. So the besieged militia are the ones who fire into crowds while riding motorcycles and killing people uh, as they drive by in order to ensure that, uh, that protests stay within their proper box and don't get out of control. The besieged militia have been extremely brutal in the past, uh, and the people they're fighting tend to come from other segments of society, as far as we can tell. Uh, the people who are of liberal values, who have modern values, uh, as we would call them, uh, are people who are not generally lower class um, veterans of the Iran-Iraq war or the children of those veterans, which seems to be where the besieged militia is primarily staffed from. The reason all of this is really critical is because the head of the besieged militia, this centerpiece of the Iranian government, was assassinated yesterday. He was assassinated by two men on a motorcycle. They drove by and they shot him down outside of his house. The question is, who would do this and why and what could it possibly signal? The interesting thing is, is there's lots of people who might have a reason to kill this particular man. Regime change can happen because the besieged decide not to defend the regime, but it could also happen because the besieged decide to change the regime because it is no longer representing the values that they are willing to die for. Uh, the extreme corruption and incompetence of the current government might be enough to drive the militia to take things into their own hands and decide to install something that's pure in its execution of Islamic principles. If that were to be the case, then you could see other people in the government killing the head of the besieged militia just to limit the threat. That seems very conspiracy theorist, so I don't know if that's got any accuracy to it. In fact, I have no idea who killed the guy. But if you look at the other enemies of the Iranian regime, uh, the Kurds, I don't know if they do these sorts of assassinations all that often. Maybe they do with Israeli support. The Baluchi tend to blow themselves up. The Americans tend to drop bombs on people. Uh, we don't really know who killed this guy or why. Personally, I see Israeli spies in every part of the Iranian government. The Israelis have an uncanny ability to know exactly which crate to attack or exactly who is planning a drone attack or which air, air, uh, aircraft is landing with advanced missile systems, etc., etc., etc. And the only way I can see Israel pulling this off is if people inside the Iranian regime are feeding them information. It could be the same people who let the Americans know that there would be a cruise missile attack and enable them to get to fortified bunkers. So I think that there's probably significant support for a change for the, in the regime, even within the halls of power. And the only thing that would drive this, of course, would be the incompetence and the corruption of the regime and people feeling that perhaps what they're engaged in is itself evil. So perhaps, God willing, those people who want to change and who already have power at their disposal are trying to side on the besiege and assassinating the head of the besiege is the first step in doing so. One can hope. The primary news I want to cover today is the Taiwanese elections that occurred last week. I had a very busy week last week. I didn't have a chance to talk about this, um, but I think it's very critical and important to talk about, and perhaps even more so in light of the Wuhan virus that is now beginning to spread. In last week's elections, the pro-independence candidate, the candidate who wants Taiwanese independence from China, won by a huge margin. Now, just to give a quick bit of background, Taiwan broke off from China after the rise of the communists in China. Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists went to Taiwan. 
And Taiwan uh, long regarded itself as the seat of power for all of China. And there was one China as far as Taiwan was concerned. And likewise, the Chinese uh, on the mainland believed that Taiwan was a part of China. And there was one China and there was no division between the, uh, the two Chinas. Both of them claimed to represent the government for everybody. What's happened more recently is that Taiwan has begun to see itself in its uh, in an independent light. Uh, the Wall Street Journal covered this not so long ago. They talked about, uh, about polls within Taiwan. Uh, and in recent decades, the number who identify themselves as Taiwanese and not Chinese, as opposed to Taiwanese and Chinese or just Chinese, has shot up to uh, a majority. And so you have a situation in which Taiwan is identifying itself as its own national identity. It's a separate national identity. And this is very threatening to the greater China dream of President Xi and quite a break from the historical setup. So what you tended to have in Taiwan is candidates who see one China as a future. Um, and they might see that one China as being under under uh, Taiwanese control, perhaps way back. Um, but more and more, it's been a pro-Beijing party and an anti-Beijing party. With the protests in Hong Kong and the votes that happened there, the vote in Taiwan swung highly against China, uh, and the anti-Chinese candidate won by an overwhelming majority. This is something that is uh, very interesting, and it's more than an election. I think it signals something far greater than an election, but in order to understand what that is and why it's important to us, we have to look at the, uh, at the overall Chinese picture. So I am not a lover of the Chinese system. I recognize certain people look at its uh, totalitarian features and its ability to get things done quickly uh, and applaud it. Uh, you've had various economists do this. You've had very, various people uh, invest, interested in, in climate change uh, pointing at the regime and saying, look, they can make every electric car electric within five years, whatever it happens to be. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, I see very different China. I see a very negative China. One of the things that I've focused on and lots of other people have focused on is the Uyghur camps, uh, the, the elimination of the Uyghur culture, the ability to, uh, to, to crack down on a population to such a degree that, uh, that it, within a matter of less than a generation, uh, everything is gone. Uh, the Uyghurs were a, uh, I mean, there are different groups of Muslims within China, but this particular group uh, were um, quite an old culture that had been fighting for its independence from China for a long time. If you ask Chinese, they are Chinese and there's no choice and that's it. Um, but they had mosques, they had their own, they had bakeries, they had all sorts of uh, uh, local cultural artifacts. Uh, and bit by bit, the Chinese have broken those off. Just to give an example of one of the ways in which they've controlled things, uh, they've made it to where in order to buy a knife within the Uyghur province, that each knife has to be barcoded with the identity of the person who purchased it. That way, if it's used later in an attack, they know who did it. Uh, now, the Uyghurs, of course, have engaged in terrorist attacks against the Han Chinese population. The way they see it is that the Han Chinese, who are the majority of the Chinese population, uh, have moved into the Uyghur provinces uh, in large numbers, and they are invaders. And so they have all become targets in the sort of ethnic conflict that is very familiar to those in the Middle East. And so the Uyghurs have <clears throat> on occasion gone off on knife assaults in which they have killed uh, quite a few people in train stations and this sort of thing. And so the government cracked down by bringing in lots of police cameras, uh, facial identification, social credit score systems, etc. If you went to a mosque, if you went to the wrong mosque, whatever it happened to be, they would sideline you and ensure that you were brought to the side 
and you were effectively uh, squeezed out of proper society. They then took it another level. They established re-education camps in which they put well over a million people. Uh, and those re-education camps apparently have been quite successful in re-educating people uh, and making them understand the glory that the Chinese government has to offer uh, all people who identify as Chinese or who should be identifying as Chinese. One of the other things that the uh, that the government has done during that time, and I think I brought it up before on the podcast, is that they've had partnering uh, for progress. I can't remember what the actual name of the uh, of the operation was, but they actually put Han Chinese communist men in, had them live with the families of those who had been brought to education camps, um, and uh, and sleep with their wives, um, perhaps not willingly, in order to educate them in order to have proper and frank discussions about the wonders of the Han Chinese system and the Chinese dream. This is, this is scary stuff. Um, and even though it's a reaction to a terrorist, organiz- uh, to a terrorist effort uh, on the part of the Uyghurs against the Chinese, uh, it takes things to such a degree, to such a maximalist degree, that, uh, that it should be quite concerning. Uh, and it should bother those who are outside of Chinese political control. But maybe not enough that people would do anything about it. After all, we're willing to look aside from many things that people do within their own countries. It's something that doesn't make us necessarily get involved or active or make us uh, lodge protests with anybody. Uh, the second thing that, uh, that's been happening, happening for quite a while actually, is using prisoners for, uh, for body parts. Uh, prisoners get executed. Theoretically, they're guilty of some crime. They might be political prisoners, though we don't know. Uh, and then they sell the body parts. This is something that uh, the Falun Gong have complained about uh, quite a bit. Whether or not the Falun Gong are right, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but there certainly seems to be quite a few records of people being uh, used for spare parts, which are then sold for cash. The third thing that is quite interesting is the social credit system. I've talked about this before. But the social credit system basically, uh, based on whether or not you're impatient in an office or whether or not you wait nicely or whatever it happens to be, you gradually get more and more benefits in society. You might get special lines. You get the ability to travel by air or by train. Uh, and they can make your life more and more difficult or easier and easier based on your social credit score. And the goal, again, is to marginalize those people who don't get along with the regime as a whole. These are 1984-style tools that are being used within China. Now, none of this necessarily should have uh, a concern for those people who live outside of China. After all, we can't fix the world's problems. Uh, we've tried this before. It doesn't work very well. Generally speaking, it's best to uh, to allow people to have their own internal issues. The challenge with China is that it's not just an internal issue because they define what's internal in such maximalist terms. One of the areas we've seen this is the creation of islands uh, in which the Chinese have claimed more and more sea territories. Historically, there's in the basis of various atolls that they've built up uh, into islands and then put military bases on. Uh, they've come into conflict with Vietnam and with the Philippines uh, using this technique. And it is a technique that expands the definition of where China ends. Taiwan, of course, is a central case of this. China is defining Taiwan as part of itself. And certainly there's historical precedent for this, but the Taiwanese people aren't. Uh, and we tend to support uh, self-determination of nations and self-determinations of people. And we don't support the idea of China coming in with a massive military advantage, which they have, uh, and taking over Taiwan because, gosh darn it, it's Chinese whether or not they like it. I was at a conference, an aerospace conference, uh, a few years ago. And I was across from a Chinese man booth, or woman booth in this case, uh, and I was talking to the woman uh, about China, and we had, I think, an Hungarian booth nearby, I don't know why, 
And uh, and I said, look, Hungary uh, is interesting. It, it was conquered by the Mongols. And she turned to me and with a completely straight face, she said, oh, it's Chinese. And I was a bit taken aback. I'd never really considered Hungary to be Chinese. She goes, ah, the Mongols conquered it once, so therefore it's Chinese. I said, well, the Mongols didn't necessarily consider themselves Chinese. She goes, it doesn't matter. They're Chinese. I said, well, the Uyghurs don't necessarily consider themselves Chinese. It doesn't matter. They're Chinese. The definition of Chinese is what she said it was. And I said, well, that seems very odd to me. I would think people would be able to define themselves as belonging to a culture or not. And she told me with a completely straight face that it would take me five lifetimes to acquire the wisdom to understand how these people were Chinese, whether or not they wanted to be. Okay. If that's your definition of Chinese, if that's the definition of where your borders end, if you expect the Chinese um, supremacy to naturally extend into places like Hungary, because those are part of greater China, then you've got a situation in which the regime becomes threatening to those outside of its borders. Now, when we look at the communist regime in China, theoretically communist, nominally communist regime, it is fair to ask what kind of government it is. Uh, Obviously, it's not a communist government. They have a very highly developed economy, uh, and that has not happened under communist, everybody gets equal bits uh, um, rule. In fact, China is probably the most representative idea of crony capitalism in the world. They have a state-guided state economy, and the richest people and the most powerful people are completely indistinguishable. I'll give you an example. In the U.S., the U.S. lawmakers, those in Congress, the House, and the Senate, have a combined network of net worth of $2.6 billion. This is an economic country with a per capita income of $60,000. So $2.6 billion is a fair amount of money, and if you add in Donald Trump, then you have more. Donald Trump by himself, uh, who knows what he's worth, what he says he's worth, and what he actually is worth from a monetary perspective might be very different. If you were to have a Michael Bloomberg be president, you might end up with a total net worth in the halls of power and the top of government uh, close to $100 billion. Uh, but currently, I would imagine it's, it's under $5 billion, quite clearly under $5 billion. In 2018, the Chinese government, parliament, uh, the lawmakers had a combined net worth of $650 billion. The per capita income for China is $4,000 a person, and the parliament is worth $650 billion. Just to compare that with Congress, to do the back of the napkin math, it's more than 200 times as much. So people complain about wealth and power and commingling in other countries. But Chinese government is dominated by the rich and the powerful because the way in which you become rich and powerful is through political power. It's like in order for Bill Gates to make his fortune or Sergey Brin to make their fortune or Jeff Bezos or any of those people to make their money, they had to be in government. And once they were in government, they were guaranteed to make money. The two things are one and the same. But in fact, while those people hire lobbyists and have lots of lobbyists, They are not indistinguishable from the people actually making the decision. They have to come to them and ask for support and for help. The richest U.S. lawmaker, uh, I think it's ISA, is worth something in the range of $250 to $300 million. And that is just nothing in comparison to the people who have the wealth and the power in China. So it's a supremacist economy. We covered that before in terms of the Han Chinese. It's a state-guided economy. Uh, and it's trying to expand to every region that it considers to match it from an ethnic perspective. 
So this is, I think, perhaps a racially or ethnically fascist government. And I'm not the first person to point that out. Uh, And President Xi, though, brings something new to the picture. President Xi has had the army swear allegiance not to the state and not to the party, but to him personally. So you have the emergence, perhaps, of a personality-focused fascist state. And people within the state are willing to accept it. People outside of the state are willing to accept it because the trains run on time. Look at the wonderful things they can do in China because they have the ability to exercise this absolute control. They can do what's right. We've seen that pattern before as well. We've seen people saying, look at the wonderful things this or that regime does. We should excuse it, uh, its little excesses, its cute little excesses, because after all, they're actually able to make the big decisions and the hard decisions that are necessary to bring out the future in the best possible way. By the way, one of the times in which we saw this was before uh, World War II. You had support for uh, for uh, Italian and for German fascists and support for the fascist system in general because it made things work. It made things run. Uh, and when you looked at the German fascists in particular, uh, within the U.S., there was a huge movement for eugenics, and they re- really regretted the fact that they didn't have the ability to do what they could do in Germany. Uh, they could make steps more quickly. They could carry things out more quickly. They could bring progress more quickly. In the American system, they had to go through courts. They had to present evidence. Uh, yes, certainly they were sterilizing people who they deemed undesirable or genetically flawed, and many, many people, uh, but those sterilization programs were hampered uh, by a legal system that pushed back more. So what you end up with is, uh, is a situation in China in which people are willing to look the other way, but you see an ethnically focused fascist economy governed by an individual that is beginning to take on some very threatening tones and some very threatening attitudes in terms of its neighbors and in terms of its own people. Now, the important question, the next obvious question is whether or not really, despite all of this, there's anything that we in the West should be doing. After all, to some degree, you can say it's just their business. I don't think it's just their business because they are really expansionist. The second argument is that it's their culture, right? It's not our place to say, hey, you should have a Western liberal democracy because after all, you're not a Western. China is not a Western country. Liberal democracy might not be fitting for Chinese. Uh, And I would argue perhaps about some uh, absolute morality issues, I don't think it's appropriate to have political and religious prisoners having their organs extra-legally harvested and sold for cash in the name of society's overall benefit. After all, they need the cash. But some people can argue in favor of that. They can argue that the individual is really not so important, that the collective is far more important. Um, but personally, I think that it's important to see the realization of human potential. And I don't think that's about money or power. I think the lowliest day laborer in Wuhan has as much potential as Chairman Xi. It's about the choices people make in their circumstances and their opportunity to make those choices that beautifies their souls. And I'm a religious person. I think the beautification of souls is one of our highest purposes, perhaps the highest purpose we have in our lives. I think a society is beautiful when it gives individuals more opportunities to make themselves beautiful, not necessarily when it forces them into a conformist idea. Again, to borrow from a book that I've, <laughs> I've quoted on occasion, uh, a metaphor from a book, I want to see people as rocks plastered over and brought together, not as bricks that have been forced together uh, and, uh, and, 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 and uh, in which the humanity of the individual has been removed. 
So while this sort of communitarianism might be in the Chinese culture, and I can accept that it's in the Chinese culture, I don't think that it should necessarily be the end of the discussion. After all, the Chinese culture itself is maybe not necessarily as fixed on these values as we see. So one of the things we've seen, of course, uh, one of the arguments against doing anything in China is that our ideas of democracy can't be transplanted onto Chinese culture. In other words, we should be happy to try and box them in, prevent them from expanding, and not criticize their internal affairs too much because they're the best they can do. And we've seen that, and it seems reasonable. We've seen it in other places. We've tried to help in Iraq in that regard. It didn't work very well. The Iraqis really weren't ready for a liberal democracy. In South America, Bolivar uh, threw out the Spanish. He wanted democracy. He wanted to be the George Washington of South America. And in the end, he decided on dictatorship because the people of South America weren't ready for freedom. They didn't have the tools necessary to live in a free society, and you could argue that they still aren't ready. They're still having the same struggles they were having in the time of Bolivar. We could see the same thing in Russia. But of course, we all know, or at least we know of, Iraqis and South Americans and Russians who've done very well in the United States, even if they remain identifiably connected to their prior cultures. And I think that the reason is that reason for that is because there's a web of culture that resists change. Within a certain society, you can have a web of tools that prevent it from changing to a different way of looking at the world. Um, and that sort of web is the same web that does honor killings of women in the Arab world. Um, they step outside of the line of what's considered morally acceptable, and there are very severe and immediate repercussions that prevent change. I think this is why, in the early years of the revolution, as many as 75 million Chinese had to die in order to enable the alien ideas of Marxism, the European ideas of Marxism, to be brought into China, to be superimposed. Because you had to break the existing web of culture in order to bring in a new culture. Okay, all of that, not aside, but building on all of that, if we look at the idea of the, the, the Chinese threat that's extending, there's a question about what we should be doing. If we think that they don't actually want to do anything differently. If we think that the Chinese within mainland China uh, are incompatible with the ideas of liberal democracy or of a system that enables more personal freedom or that somehow that system would be inappropriate for them as a people, then, uh, then your policy as far as China can be concerned, is concerned, should just be to hem them in. You should work with an alliance of Pacific countries, you should work with uh, South Asian countries, you should work with Central Asian countries in order to limit Chinese expansion, uh, hold them within their box so that while they are doing these things internally, they're not actually a threat to those outside of the, uh, of the Chinese borders. However, perhaps if the Chinese are not as dedicated to these ideas and the ideas of liberal democracy are not as foreign as you might imagine, then maybe you should leave open the possibility of change. You don't have to encourage that change, but you just leave open the possibility of being willing to embrace it. So this is in this context that I want to bring up the two recent Chinese elections, the elections in Hong Kong and the elections in Taiwan, because in both cases, anti-communist party groups won huge victories. To me, these elections show the Chinese people, only a generation or two removed from the mainland, are able to handle liberal democracy. Not only that, but they want liberal democracy instead of Communist Party rule. They want freedom over stability. And traditional Chinese culture, which was arguably far better preserved in Taiwan than in the mainland, is compatible with concepts like the rule of law. 
You don't necessarily have to go for liberal democracy to have the rule of law, but the rule of law is the thing that has really has really separated the Chinese mainland from Hong Kong and Taiwan. The thing that really started the protests in Hong Kong was the ability to extradite people from Hong Kong for breaking mainland laws, and the mainland justice system is incredibly opaque. The uh, security forces have tremendous power to do whatever they'd like, uh, and there's very little checks on their power uh, within society itself. There's no there's no daylight. There's no light cast on what they're doing or why they're doing it, uh, and the ability to protest against the actions of the police is extremely limited. And so the rule of law is something that, that puts a check on the sort of corruption that we see in China, and we might think the rule of law is incompatible with Chinese culture, but we've seen it emerge in both Taiwan and in Hong Kong. And I think the rule of law was one of those things that really drove the revolution against Chiang Kai-shek. Um, certainly in a hundred years ago, when China was, uh, was drifting away from its prior dynastic approaches towards government, we saw uh, a breakdown of the rule of law of local gangsters ruling different regions. And of course, some of this was brought on by foreign powers in their areas that they occupied. But you ended up with a society in which the rule of law had really uh, disappeared, uh, and perhaps it has never really come back. But going back to the main point, it appears the Chinese culture is in fact compatible with that idea. So do these elections threaten the Communist Party? I think the very fact that China is taking its internal repression to such an extreme degree indicates that there's potential for a problem. They wouldn't be doing it. They wouldn't be spending all this money and all this effort and all this manpower if their own people were very happy to go along and get along with the, uh, with the culture as it stands. Uh, I think all of the overwhelming spending and effort put on internal repression exists because there is a need for internal repression. And the reason for that need might be growing. After all, the unspoken contract of the communist or fascist party regime in China is that they make the economy hum and the people give up their freedom. With tariffs, though, and their massive government debt prices and now the Wuhan virus, this formula is threatened. And the Wuhan virus especially brings out the natural failures of this sort of system. In this sort of uh, totalitarian top-down government, uh, negative information that's passed up the line results in repercussions for those who are the bearers of bad news. Uh, and so it's best not to bear bad news. And so you end up with a very unnatural flow of information from uh, from the street up to the top level. Uh, and you can end up with, uh, without any intent by the people running the place, you can end up with government statistics um, and responses to things like outbreaks of disease that are very slow uh, and very late uh, and very optimistic. Because after all, being a pessimist just gets you to lose your job. So I put all of this together, and I think that the Communist Party might be quite a bit weaker than it appears. That said, we can't tell if people want change. We can speculate looking at Taiwan and Hong Kong, but within the mainland, we can't tell. The reports years ago of an official government tally recording over 65,000 protests a year. It seems to have gotten out by accident. They haven't allowed it to come out again. But the government routinely tracks protests because in the history of China, protests are a, um, a predecessor to the change in a dynasty, the overthrowing of a government. But the Chinese government is very good at handling protests. One of the things they, they're famous for doing, and it didn't really work in Hong Kong, was you give in. You give in to the protesters' demands. In this case, in Hong Kong's case, you put off the law that, that everyone's protesting. And then you come in a little while later and you arrest everybody who's a ringleader and you disappear them. In this way, you ensure that you act when the fire's down, when it's, people's heat isn't so up, uh, and you remove the problem. 
and then people understand that at that point they've lost the momentum for their for their protests, uh, and there's really no opportunity for things to go further than they already have. But the government doesn't want people to know about all these protests because totalitarian regimes inherently, they don't want to look bad externally, but most importantly, they don't want people within the regime to know that the regime doesn't have support. If you know that everyone around you agrees with you and agrees that there's a problem and that there should be a change, then you might step out of line because you know you have mass support behind you. But if you can't know what other people think, then you won't step out of line. You'll stay true to the party line, so to speak, uh, and the regime will stay strong. So if even if there were wide, widespread support, and I really have no idea, uh, it's not something that we will see manifest before it actually happens, before there's a mass movement like we saw in Eastern Europe with the fall of the Soviet Union. So people, Chinese mainlanders, won't stick their heads up until there's a lot of heads to stick up. And we really can't criticize them for that. After all, look at the Western companies, all kinds of Western companies who have been willing to comply with Chinese oppression. And all these Western, Western companies and brands like the NBA have to lose is money. People within who threaten the regime, who don't follow the rules, have a lot more to lose than simply cash. So if change comes in China, I think it'll happen incredibly quickly, but I'm not holding my breath. Back with the Tiananmen Square protests, I remember watching them on TV, as I'm sure many other people do. My father argued, although I don't know where he got the evidence, that the Chinese government brought in those from other ethnic groups, perhaps Mongolians, to break up the protests because they didn't have any problem killing Han Chinese in Tiananmen Square. I don't think that that's necessarily such an easy option nowadays. I don't think, unlike in Syria and Iran, that there is a group so dedicated to the regime or so afraid of the people, they'll massacre massive numbers of civilians. And so if there are massive numbers of civilians, then things could change again quite quickly. As president, what would I do? Well, I would heartily congratulate the incumbent Chinese, uh, sorry, Taiwanese president on her electoral victory, but I'd leave it at that. It's not our role or our place or our ability to make a revolution happy, and it would be very, very risky to try. I would, however, offer any native Hong Kongers the opportunity to move to the United States, just as we've done with dissidents from times past, because I'm sure that they would add to our society. And for the most part, I would continue doing what the U.S. is doing. I would build up our alliances with countries all around China in order to hem in the ambitions of the Chinese government uh, and in order to encourage uh, other countries to know that they can stand strong, they can support their own freedom, uh, and that the United States will back them up, uh, at least from a financial and diplomatic perspective uh, and through supporting their own military protections. That's it for this briefing. Thank you for listening and have a great day.